You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Hello, please let me see your ticket subs for the double-edged double bill. This week, E.T. lands in Casablanca. Each week, Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. When we'll have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. I am Thomas Mariani, and I am shocked, shocked to realize there is podcasting in this establishment. I am Adam Thomas, and I do like Reese's Pieces. I like a good Reese's piece. You want a piece of that Reese's piece? Just one, though. I'll sort of go straight to my thighs. Uh, yes, but uh, Adam, we're not alone here uh, because we have a guest coming in. Of all the podcasts in all the world, he had to walk into this particular one. Returning guest, Casey Gerard. Casey, how are you doing? I'm trying to come up with a, you're winning, sir, to prolong to this. <laughs> of course, yes. I, I, I'm clearly the Claude Rains of this podcast. Um, that's the best compliment I could ever give myself. Well, I've never seen you, so you could be an invisible man. Ah, that's true. That's true. I've seen him. He isn't. No, I'm not. Damn it. <laughs> I mean, you, you could be confused by my translucent, pasty skin, but no, yes, I, I'm in fact visible to some extent. But, uh, Casey, welcome back to the show. You've been on a few times, and, uh, you know, you actually were kind of, uh, roped into this kind of message back and forth after I announced the topic for this week of the, uh, AFI Top 100 Movies, and I know you're a big fan of classic film, including one of the particular films at least we're talking about today. Is, uh, maybe one of your favorite movies ever? Some may allege that my favorite movie ever made is Casablanca. It is not only a perfect Hollywood movie, it is a perfect movie. Uh, we will we'll get into it, but I would say very few faults. Well, well, we'll get into all of that for sure in a bit, but um, let's, I guess, kind of elaborate a bit more on this. So I mentioned it's the AFI Top 100 Movies list. Uh, if you're not aware, AFI, we're not referring to the band, the pop-punk band. I can't even <laughs> Wait, imagine. Wait, we're not? <laughs> I, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but we're talking about the American Film Institute, which was uh, established, interestingly, back in 1967, after Lyndon B. Johnson himself mandated uh, that a sort of film preservation thing be started for uh, the U.S., and it was sort of the first example of that, and they also do a lot of uh, training programs and stuff for young filmmakers in L.A. Uh, they had a lot of illustrious people involved in there, uh, including uh, like the original board of uh, trustees included Gregory Peck and Sidney Poitier, um, and people like Francis Ford Coppola and a bunch of other people have like actually taught at the AFI Institute. And uh, they did a bunch of uh, specials in like the late 90s to late 2000s, which was sort of the impetus for this, because uh, in 98... They made a list of the top 100 American films of all time, and then in 2007, they updated that list. This was a topic suggested to us, actually, by some fans initially, but then I really kind of glommed onto it because I still remember, actually, in high school, the Morgan Freeman-hosted special of the 2007 list was something I really glommed onto. 
because I was like starting to get into older movies, and I found out about this list, which had a few titles that I was familiar with, like a Jaws or Raiders, a bunch of like Spielberg movies, E.T., as we'll be probably talking about later. Also, this was the list that like kind of introduced me to like, oh, these other movies like Casablanca or even Raging Bull, the Scorsese movies I hadn't seen. And I was fascinated to like try and kind of like check off the list as you do when you're especially like you're a young cinephile and you're like, oh, what are like the list of like the best movies of all time? I got to see them all. And it's something I kind of waned from after high school a bit. I would catch these movies more by accident than anything. And then in quarantine, in the middle of the COVID quarantine, we're still hopefully currently in, if you're going outside, wear a mask. But um, I realized, like, based on my Letterboxd, uh, which you don't promote a lot, Silent Tom, Letterboxd, follow. Um, I realized they have, like, a stats thing, and I found out, oh, there are only 15 of these movies I haven't seen yet. So I checked those off. I watched them in quarantine, and I have now watched all 100 movies on that updated list. Feel proud of yourself. As proud as you can be, given the circumstances. Like, I accomplished a goal. <laughs> Give it's, me that. It's been 13 years, and you were able to put out. You put more work into this, and they put it into boyhood. That's true, yeah. Fuck you, Richard Linklater. Um, anyway. Let's see you get on this list, Linklater. Right, of course. Yes, yes. Um, but I'm curious if, like, especially Adam, were you at all, like, aware of this list? And do you think this is an interesting topic to cover for the show? Yeah, I'm aware of the list. I've always been sort of aware of it. Yeah, I think it's a very interesting topic because I think obviously differences opinion of opinions are really going to show as far as if you go name by name on the list or title by title. And also, there's so many that aren't on there that should be, and I'd argue there's quite a few that shouldn't be on there. But yeah, I'm I'm very well aware of the list, and yeah, I think it's you know what, Thomas, I think it's a great topic. Who originally suggested this? I believe Rafe Telsch, previous guest, actually oh, suggested fuck. this. <laughs> I'm sorry. God damn it. We have covered a few movies on this list on our show. Yes. We've done The Apartment, Network, yes. Cabaret, and Platoons, and those are all good picks, so I think they're pretty valid staying on the list. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Ringing endorsement, of course. Casey, our guest, did you ever follow this sort of a phenomenon of the AFI Top 100? Do you agree yeah. with necessarily the current update of the list? I think I had the exact same relationship you did, because we, I mean, you and I are born 365 days apart because it's a leap year. We watched the same special. I wasn't good at staying up late, so I think I crashed somewhere in, after they named Godfather Part 2. And when I woke up the next day, I had to see who won. It's kind of a gateway drug for cinephiles. It's the equivalent of having a list of 100 best types of pot to get into, I guess. I don't know. I, I don't understand drugs. <laughs> uh, but... Oh, you know, you know it's the, the best strain is fucking swing time. You'll love that swing time <laughs> shit. I don't know. The intolerance strain, I, I respect it more than I like it. <laughs> When I was in high school, I liked pretty much any of those I saw because, like, oh, I have to like this. Then I, when I was in college, I got a little bit more distant and go, okay, I respect it more than I like it. A couple I just don't respect at all, but emphasis on a couple. By and large, even if I don't think these are the 100 movies that deserve to be on the list, I would say 98 of them are good movies, probably. Yeah, I would say the vast majority are at least good movies, Though at the same time, that does also make you question about, like, should some of them still be included? Like, two movies I really love, honestly. Uh, Bridge on the River Kwai 
and Clockwork Orange, I say, are really great movies. But at the same time, because they have, like, American financing, they're on the list. But those feel like very British movies. So I'm not sure why they would be on a top American list, personally. There's a couple examples like that, where even if they're great movies... Um, I don't know if they would necessarily work on this particular list. The thing that bugs me more, when you have a director like, say, Steven Spielberg represented five times on the list, you don't need one of every 20 movies on here to be a Steven Spielberg movie. No, I, I would agree with that. I think we'll get into that as we get into our, our second part of this. So I guess we should uh, hop into those movies that we're doing, because we ended up choosing a good and a bad pick from the movies on this list that were represented. And uh, our good pick uh, ended up being Casablanca, which uh, I had as a choice, and I'm picking number between 1 and 10, and we got that particular choice of the two choices I had. Bradham's bad, though, our patrons over at patreon.com slash gedbpod actually voted in a poll, and that got us our bad pick, in this case, the hot take bad pick for Adam of E.T. the Extraterrestrial. Those fucking edgelord assholes. Become an edgelord. That's literally our patron tier. Become an edgelord for $1 a month. But, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so we'll uh, get into all of that. But first, we're going to do our good pick of Casablanca. Set in French Morocco at the beginning of the Second World War, Casablanca is the story of Rick, cynical expatriate. What is your nationality? I'm a drunkard. Ilsa, the only woman he ever loved. You knew her. I loved you. How much I still love you. Dooley Wilson. Sidney Greenstreet. Peter Laurie. Claude Rains. Ingrid Bergman. And Humphrey Bogart. So, Casablanca was released wide to theaters January 23rd, 1943, directed by Michael Curtiz. It's one of two Michael Curtiz films on the list, um, along with Yankee Doodle Dandy, and is also one of four uh, Humphrey Bogart movies. Uh, that includes The Maltese Falcon, Treasure of the Sierra Madre, and The African Queen, along with this one. Um, and it's a very celebrated movie. It won three Oscars back at the 16th Academy Awards, given Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Screenplay. It was nominated for a bunch of others as well. It's a classic movie in a lot of regards. You've heard, like, you know, um, of all the gin joints in all the world, you had to walk into mine, or we'll always have Paris, or here's looking at you, kid. Or, you know, all the, there's so many lines that are quoted often from Casablanca, and you know that imagery. You may not have even seen the movie necessarily, and you know a lot of that imagery. Um, but I saw this in high school when I was first starting sort of this list catch-up. And I remember thinking, wow, this is still, like, a really good movie. I really enjoy it. And then this is the first time I've watched it since. And, um, spoilers, I think this is actually a genuine classic movie that deserves its status. But... I'm curious, because Adam, you were kind of voicing a bit of dissent about Casablanca at the end yeah. of our last episode, and you revisited it as well for the first time in a while, and uh, what do you think of it now? Also, since high school, uh, so you gotta figure that's been at least 18 years, if not longer, and I was kind of bored by it then, but I was probably like either stoned or thinking about getting stoned so yeah, it probably like colored the movie a little bit for me like i watched it with you know rose glasses i'm like yeah it's uh, okay uh but after rewatching it uh i mean you know i guess what all i can say about it is that it's basically um a perfect movie in every sense of the word like i <laughs> 
typically I can find or at least one or two faults in every film. I, I believe most all films have that. And I'm hard-pressed to think of one for this. I think every genre it, it, it encompasses, uh, it nails absolutely perfect. You had me on, on pins and needles there for like two minutes. <laughs> going like, is he going to do this? Am I going to have to stand up for this movie? <laughs> the real master of suspense here, Adam Thomas. Fuck out for Hitchcock. Get his four That's movies right. off the list. It's all about Adam right here. <laughs> Uh, but Casey, obviously, as you kind of mentioned, uh, you would say this is your favorite movie of all time, right? Very much so. For a while, I was like, oh, that's not my favorite movie, but objectively, it's the best one that's ever been made. And then there was a day in college where the theater was showing that I uh, sat down. I was one of the only people there. And I was like, holy shit, maybe this is my favorite. <laughs> that was solidified over like the five year since between when I next saw it again in a theater, which was inauguration day 2017 you know i'm sure it's just a coincidence what would that have to do at all with this story about somebody who doesn't feel like they need to be involved in politics in the middle of a situation where there are horrible hate groups that are trying to destroy a bunch of innocent people trying to protect their rights how dare you draw these comparisons casey old movies are old <coughs> you guys are fucking reaching man <laughs> very interesting i forgot the specific timing of this movie because there's a certain point where rick talks to julie wilson as sam his piano player at his bar that he owns and he says like oh it's december 1941 i'm like oh shit is like fucking pearl harbor gonna happen in a week like what the fuck <laughs> like they were when i was watching it earlier today you can actually see the date when he signs the check uh when he's uh, in fr- on top of the chessboard and it says december 2nd so they're Holy five days shit. Wow. I didn't even realize that. Because this was actually, because given 43, like, it was being shot, right, around probably that time, right? Before, like, we entered the war at all in the U.S. We had entered the war by it, but the play that it's based on was written. Right. I ended up reading the uh, one of the making of books, or at least uh, reading through what I could in preparation for this episode. And one of the writers of the play... He and his wife were on vacation visiting her family in, I believe, Vienna. And that was around the time they were the new rules were coming out that Jews could not own personal property. His wife's side of the family was Jewish, and they had to essentially smuggle out all their diamonds. And their it was in the middle of August, and they were wearing expensive fur coats on trains uh, in the dead of summer just in order to get it outside of Austria so they could then get it to America. And they were realizing, oh, this is serious. This is something that needs to stop. They combined it with another idea that became Everybody Comes to Rick's. And it's very much sounds like it's the movie, but pretty much almost entirely just in Rick's bar. There's no airports. There's no his apartment. It's all it's a one set play. Right. And I mean, you can definitely tell, like, there's a lot of people even involved in this movie at the time who had fleed from Europe, like Michael Curtiz, even. Like, his, he lost family in the concentration camps and, like, Auschwitz and shit. This is, like, very, a movie that was made in the moment that it was sort of, like, depicting. And that's so fascinating where it, it's dealing with, like, all these bigger, heavy subject matters, but at the same time, it's such an entertaining movie. Like, on paper, when I was seeing this for the first time in high school, I had, I guess, that sort of reluctance to it of, like, oh, it's homework with, like, a classic movie. You always have that when, like, you're younger, you're kind of having that resistance to, like, oh, it's a black-and-white movie, it's old, am I going to really be able to relate to it? And especially now more than ever, it feels so engaging and so dynamic and so relatable. You know, I this is not necessarily my favorite Bogart performance. 
you know, not to say that he makes the movie great. I mean, the movie's great for so many levels. But, uh, yeah, I, I absolutely agree. It's just, it goes by so fast, too. Like, that's the thing. You know, like you said, those homework movies back in the day felt like they took for fucking ever. Mm-hmm. Like the original County Monte Cristo. Oh, my God. I mean, there's so many of them that I had to watch that are just, oh, I don't ever want to rewatch them. But, like, obviously, like I said, I wasn't a huge fan of this when I first saw it. But my three movies in a row. Uh, I watched Arsenic and Old Lace, then Some Like It Hot, and then Casablanca. Those were the three movies in a in a brick in my drama class. And I mean, dude, you don't get much better than those three, and all three of them hold up. But Casablanca is, yeah, it's a fucking masterpiece. You feel the the absolute love and admiration between you know Humphrey Bogart and Ingrid Bergman. Dude, I'll watch anything Peter Laurie's in. Mm-hmm. That fucking sniveling, weird, slimy fuck. <laughs> I fucking love that guy. You know, I, I don't say it all. Well, I probably say it all the time, but fuck you for picking this, Thomas. Like, <laughs> but but you know what's so fascinating also is finding out a bit more. In case you can obviously school us on this, given that you read a book like a nerd, um, as we talk about this, these classic <laughs> movies. Job, Mr. French man. But apparently, just the fact that like the production of this movie sounds insane because like they started without f- finishing the shooting script. And as you mentioned, like, they were really changing things all the time, and there was just all this, like, chaos for a movie that was essentially supposed to be, like, oh, it's, like, an A-grade pot boiler, but not something they ever designed to be the classic movie it's ended up being. More or less, Warner Brothers was a lot more into the war effort than pretty much any of the other studios, uh, so as a result, it is a little bit slapdash because they wanted to get it right but they also were just trying to get something out of it in the middle of all the chaos but i think the thing that really sets above is it's a hilarious movie on top of being a really engaging drama oh claude rains is phenomenally hilarious in this movie like he has so many like great pointed bits like i mentioned the whole the gambling bit at the beginning or the bit which is like i'll shoot you straight in your heart oh that's my least vulnerable spot and then he picks up the phone and shit he's so hilarious in this movie i think that they made a really good choice making uh rick a funny character and a wisecracking character like when ugardi says oh you decide me don't you rick and he just looks at him for a second and goes eh, if i thought about you i probably would and the fact that I had only watched the movie for the last time about three weeks ago, all the funny jokes were in my head. So this time I wasn't laughing at the jokes I already had in my head as much, which meant that there was another joke that I didn't think about a lot. And that really hit home with me where he's looking at the profile that Major Stressor has of him and he just goes, are my eyes really brown? Oh, yeah. That's such a good joke to put in a black and white movie. <laughs> what What's so great is, like, coming to this movie, there, there's so much, like, actual, not just the humor, but also, like, humanity to it that makes it so engaging. And especially, you get so much, like, you know, I, I don't want to be uh, old school to, like, they don't make them like they used to. But for real, like, any scene where Ingrid Bergman is, like, watching somebody and, like, her eyes are getting watery, like, you don't get that in modern movies. Just the specific type of celluloid and all this other stuff that was used in the way it's lit perfectly in black and white of this pristine era. Like, you instantly empathize with her, just looking at her face. And from there, obviously, there's all this, like, actual character motivations that make a lot of sense. And it, it's like Adam mentioned, it moves at a clip. Like, it's an hour, 42 minutes, and it feels even shorter than that. 
it does the great thing where like it's a movie that you would crave more of, but you know, like no, you can't have any more. It's the perfect length. I, I think it it absolutely just ends on a perfect note. They give you everything you could possibly want to see in the film any longer, and I I honestly think it would start to do the film a disservice. So you guys aren't in favor of the sequel that they floated, where it turns out that Rick had been an American spy the whole time. That would have been the worst fucking idea. <laughs> That's so awful. That's some Rise of Skywalker bullshit. <laughs> it's one of those great movies where if you're as exposed to pop culture as any of us are, and you've seen like some of these especially older things that reference Casablanca consistently, as a you know person who went to Disney theme parks a lot as a kid especially, I was like, oh, that bit from the great movie ride where they're on the at the fucking airport <laughs> and all this other bullshit, um, which I do love. At the time, MGM was like, oh no, this is the actual airplane from Casablanca, even though the whole point in Casablanca, it's like, oh no, we were so cheap that we couldn't afford that plane. Like, that's cardboard in the fucking movie. It's cardboard and it's dwarves in front. Right. The perspective is amazing, that, that sort of thing, where like you wouldn't be able to tell at all. And even though it's the middle of the desert, it's covered in fog and there's puddles everywhere, like it just rained hard. Right, it's a great thing where this movie has so many of the aesthetics of a uh, film noir movie, but it also has so much of like all these other different genres. Like we mentioned, there's the romance, there's the sort of spy thrills that are going on, there's the wartime conflicts and stuff. There's even a great like musical bit in here. I think the moment that like almost got me to tears this time, where they have the French uh, guys come in and try it and stop drown out the sounds of like the Nazis singing German show tunes with the French. Uh, I think it's the anthem, right? The national anthem. Yeah. In France? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I, I love that whole sequence. That's just a beautiful, weird example where, like, you get emotionally swept up in something that sounds really silly on paper, and then you're just like, Viva la France. Oh, my God. It helps that pretty much every actor in that scene had come to America fleeing Nazi Germany. Yeah, when Yvonne is crying, that's not stage years. That's the actual actress crying. Especially upon this watch, the Victor Laszlo character was somebody who I barely even remembered from my first watch. And then watching it this time, it's like, oh my god, I totally get why she would be so into him. That weird conflict of, like, she he, she thought he was dead in the concentration camp, and then he came back, and there's that conflict with Rick. And you might think, like, she might have loved Rick, but she loves that cause and this man for doing what he does just as much and there's so much of this like conflict back and forth it's a genuinely great love triangle which so many movies have tried and failed to do in the decades since this and rick doesn't have a sweet original gi joe scar that's true he doesn't have that (laughs) no when i watch this movie and you're watching elsa decide between the man she used to love and the man she's with uh the moment uh, that she stops debating who that she wants to be with is when she watches him lead the French anthem. The, how into it he gets, how he's leading the crowd, how he's choosing to fight even the most minor battle just because he knows it's the right thing to do. And the way she looks at him, when you were talking about the way Ingrid Bergman looks at people, that's the shot I think of when I think of Ingrid Bergman in this movie. Or Ingrid Bergman in general. Like, she's been in so many great movies, but that's sort of, like, the iconic image of her. That's the thing that this movie also... Like, people throw around the word iconic so much, but this movie, like, just throws it out on a whim. Because, like I said, it isn't concerned with being, like, too... I don't want to say pretentious, but, like, you feel that a bit more with, like, as much as I do think Citizen Kane is a great movie, that's a movie that really thinks it's important. And it is, to a certain extent. 
but also it's a movie that has that sort of chip on its shoulder. Versus Casablanca does not have that whatsoever. Its main concern really is to entertain while delivering some of these messages we're talking about and having like actual genuine emotion that's going on at the same time. But it doesn't feel like it's too full of itself, quite frankly, as some movies on this list can be. I agree 100%. Eh, 95%. Even the pretentious ones I like. I'm a snob. Yeah, you said it. Uh, I don't... <laughs> no, I absolutely agree. I don't ever get a sense of... Uh that they're being preachy or being pretentious or anything like that in this movie. It, it's just beautifully done film. And what would you say sort of makes it feel kind of timeless to you, Adam? What do you, what would you say would entertain 2020 audiences still to this day? With a movie like this, with a movie like Casablanca, I mean, it's got the legacy factor to it. It's got the name recognition already. So people are already going to go into it expecting to be blown away. Uh, I think what will sort of prove its worth to people is, Easily the performances uh, all around are, are fantastic. Uh, I mean, and it's just you're seeing storytelling done in a way that hasn't been done in so long uh, to such a sort of fine-tuned degree. And, you know, and, and plus just, dude, it's fucking dynamite to look at. You know, every it's just, it's a just, I, honestly, what would keep them entertained is just how well it's done it doesn't feel old and cheesy it doesn't feel like like i said before the count of monte cristo where everybody's got way too much makeup on you know and so they show up under the lights or on screen or anything this feels real it feels sort of dirty and gritty in parts but yet beautiful in other parts and you know at the heart of it there is this love story but there's also a thrill like sort of a thriller suspense sort of part to it there's a historical aspect to it uh, you know, it, it's just there's so much here in this hour and 42 minute package that I think you'd be hard pressed not to find someone entertained. I mean, I mean, no bullshit. My four year old daughter laid on the bed and watched almost all of Casablanca with me. A four year old watched Casablanca almost completely through until she started falling asleep at the very end because it's her bedtime. That's fucking crazy. But that's how good it is to look at. Yeah, this is the first time I probably saw it in HD, and it's one of those great black and white movies where it feels like even though so much of it is, like, older school-style filmmaking, you do watch and you're like, fuck, this feels like it was made yesterday. Like the Seventh Seal, like we covered before, yeah. Right. Just with some of, like, the the, the witty back and forth that's going on there uh, feels timeless. And even just, like, despite how Humphrey Bogart is somebody who I was exposed to Looney Tunes or even just going to fucking movie theaters and the Casablanca silhouette or whatever would be done up in fucking, like, movie theater lobbies and shit. Like, mm-hmm. when you actually watch him in this movie, despite him being sort of this, like, big, iconic person, like, you feel the depths and you feel the highs so much. Like, when he's completely on the outs in his own bar and he looks like a sad-ass drunk, you feel like he's an actual person who's in a sad state. And then at the same time, when they're having that montage of him and Ingrid Bergman having their, like, whirlwind romance in Paris, you feel that love and connection there at the same mm-hmm. time. Like, none of it feels disingenuous. Right. No, I completely agree. And it's so funny because Bogey has sort of reputation about him as even with his film characters where, you know, he's the sort of film noir detective and, you know, the Maltese Falcon and he's the tough guy. He's always smoking and he's, you know, wearing the hats and the and the trench coats and everything. And you watch this movie. He's just a vulnerable sort of broken dude. Like he was really hurt and he's trying to escape everything that hurt him. You know, and he, he shows real vulnerability. And it's it's not what you would expect either. 
out of a performance from uh, maybe Humphrey Bogart or even from a sort of main leading man at this time. He's still able to be cool while vulnerable. I I believe it's this of the Humphrey Bogart movies. That's the one that's where Frank Sinatra said, I'm modeling my fashion off of that. People wanted to be Humphrey Bogart in this movie where he's vulnerable, sad, and drunk, but he's still able to be cool. He's still able to be funny. I love the morning after his bender, he runs into Ilsa at the marketplace and he has put himself together Don Draper style. Yes, very much so. And, and I also like like how they create sort of the world around Rick's bar, where like his relationship with all the different people in his staff, like obviously uh, Dooley Wilson is Sam, and like their back and forth feels like, oh, they treat each other as equals, they're very fair, like he, how he really loves his staff, even down to that weird dude who looks like Guillermo del Toro, who's going around just like, oh, sir, yes, I can't believe you did that for that couple, we need to get out of here, and you gave him all those winnings. I love that scene, too. That's a great example where, like, Rick is being an empathetic person, but he's doing it, like, the coolest way possible, just like, keep it on 22, keep it on 22, now get the fuck out, take your wings. Where it's him gaining that empathy without, um, sort of having that guard down that we were mentioning that he kind of has built. And even, like, the world of Casablanca in general, you feel like this place is a shitty awful place you wouldn't want to be around but then when you go into rick's it's like oh it's so stylish and there's so much commotion and it feels like an actual living restaurant like how many movies around this time where you see people like doing background stuff how often does it feel phony and fake and in this movie it's like no i'm in the middle of this actual restaurant that's a big spot in casablanca it feels like so lived in real in a way that you can tell inspired a lot of movies also it's like a star wars like you see so much of the cantina bar in this fucking movie like, you see how much of the influence has tripled down over the course of these decades, and how it also just still feels so new in the same time, just in its specific fashion. Right all the way down to, of course, obviously, the ending of this movie. One of the best movie endings of all time. Like, it's such a perfect way of wrapping everything up where he doesn't actually get the girl, but he gets his own sort of, like, respect for himself and his ability to stand up for a cause. At the same time, he becomes a better person for losing something big. Like, he could have, like, fucked over Victor Laszlo and gotten a bunch of money and gotten the girl, but he had, like, morals and ethics that suddenly came into being with him after this whole adventure. And it all feels so fluid and perfect, and you feel emotionally invested in it, even down to as, like, they're going away with the one of the most iconic movie lines of this could be the star of a beautiful friendship. That was ADR'd. They did that way after, and they just came up with that. And it still feels like it's fucking like, no, this was all of a piece. Nothing feels like it was just made up on the spot. <laughs> to the point where it doesn't even feel scripted. It feels like you're watching people have natural conversation most of the time. It, you know, the, those little nuggets of, you know, comedy from Claude Rain's character, especially and everything. It feels perfectly in line with his character. And it's real sharp. It's real. Uh, it doesn't feel overtly polished. Like, it just feels like it was off the cuff, but not distractingly off the cuff like it feels like a normal sort of reaction it's amazing what they were able to get through and how quickly they would do it while they were also trying to thread the needle of what they could and couldn't do with the haze code we can't have claude rains explicitly implying that he's handing out visas in exchange for women sleeping with him uh how close can we get to implying that yeah that's a whole other hurdle you don't even think about now because of just like, oh, people can like do R-rated movies, whatever the fuck. Back in those days, you had specific guidelines of what you could and couldn't do, period, in any movie. Which is why I've always been a little more apprehensive to buy into the story that they like to tell of, we didn't know how we were going to end it when we were filming. Because it's the same ending as the play. This was the ending that they were handed when they said, we're going to shoot the movie. But I do think that they likely 
uh, probably toss around like, eh, what if we have her end up with Rick? Well, to do that, we have to kill Laszlo. Is there a way we can get that work? And when they realized they couldn't, they just stuck with what they had. Is there a way we can do this without seeming shitty about like, oh man, we killed this big French representation of trying to fight the Nazis? Oh, well. <laughs> At least we've got each other. But no, yeah, it all works. Even that, like, we didn't talk about it much, but the main Nazi captain, Conrad Veidt, also, I, I love how intimidating that dude is, and even when he gets shot. And I, it's also weird just thinking, oh yeah, 20 years before this, he was the dude from Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Dude, he's also the basis for the Joker. He's the man who smiles. Right, the, the man laughs. who laughs, yeah. yeah. Well, let's go ahead and dig into final thoughts then on uh, Casablanca. Uh, Casey, as our guest, you go ahead and go first. It's pretty good. All right, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, it's, uh, it's worth a watch. Sorry, right. it's okay. <laughs> seven out of ten. It's fine. Six and a half, seven. Depends on your mood. <laughs> uh, I'd give it a B plus. Overachieving. But Casey, your 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 length, your final thoughts. It is the best Hollywood movie ever made. Uh, the chaos of the production every once in a while turns out something utterly amazing, and this works on virtually every level. Even if you're not into the melodrama or even if you know that story, there's so much other stuff going on that you can get into. It's riveting. There's so many interesting characters. It's Even though it's a predominantly white movie, for that time, the idea of having a movie where of the 14 credited stars, only three of them were from America, that's pretty nuts. This is largely a movie of immigrants. It's largely a movie of people who had to come here in hiding from the very thing they're making a movie uh, crying for uh, speaking out against. This is the best piece of propaganda ever made. Yeah, well said. Uh, Adam, your final thoughts. I mean, I'm just going to basically echo everything Casey said and then just add, motherfucker. (laughs) Like a badass. I like that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Everybody here... Whether it was tumultuous on set or not, which obviously it was, uh, but everyone here is clearly on their A game. They used whatever the fuck, you know, production problems there might have been and whatever was going on. It clearly only brought their game up. Like, they they fucking, is it, to me, the greatest American movie ever made? Probably not, but it's easily in the top three. Like, it's, if not, it's right at number two. Like, it's always, and I think this is one of those movies that will always hold that spot. I, I don't think 20, 30, 40 years from now, people will not know what Casablanca is. I think it's like Wizard of Oz, where it's just timeless. Where it's, even if you're not a fan of Wizard of Oz or not, you know what the fuck it is. Like, I, as a kid, I knew what it was. And I could see my you know, younger sister, she knows what it is. And my daughter knows what it is now. And she's four. Uh, Casablanca is going to be like that for people who are starting to get into film and have a film appreciation. It, it is, in every sense of the word, a, a perfect movie. It is, in also every sense of the word, an important film. Even on a film historian or film buff or film critic level, um, it, it, Casablanca is one that absolutely uh, needs to be seen uh, studied, dissected, or just watched for pure enjoyment. It works on every possible level. Yeah, it's interesting that ranking, given literally it is number three on the list, and it was number two until The Godfather leaped over it. Oh, I'm like a wizard! <laughs> Man, Godfather isn't even the best Godfather movie. 
Um, I mean, I don't have much to add from what you guys are saying. Um, I'll just say two things. One, um, we didn't mention As Time Goes By, which is one of the best songs in the movie ever. And anytime that song's used, it's so beautiful and wonderful, and even in the score. And then also, if you have an aversion to classic film, if you've always felt like that homework sensation I was referring to earlier, um, this is the perfect movie to counteract that argument. It's the perfect movie to watch, and it's like, oh no, this is still incredibly fast-paced, entertaining, emotional, funny, all this other stuff. There's so much here that you can find that would still entertain you now that we're almost 70 years, right? 80? What, my math's wrong? It's going to be 80 in a few years. In a few years, yes. Thank you. Yes. Um, our, our math's great here. We're, we're a great math podcast. But we got to get into our second film in a bit. First, here's an ad for an ESO show you can queue up right after hours. I'm Brittany Vitrino. And I'm Martha Bartlett. We've been nerds since day one, and we love to talk. And now we're your hosts of But, but First, Let's, Let's Talk Nerdy. Come listen if you like anything from comics, anime, video games, sci-fi, and even history. Just sit back, relax, even join us with a drink in hand, because we'll have one in ours too, and come talk nerdy with us every Tuesday. We are now a proud member of the ESO Network, and you can download wherever you like to listen. See you next Tuesday. All right, now let's get into our second feature, E.T., the extraterrestrial. Every once in a while, everyone's life needs to be touched. Touched by a little magic. I'm keeping him. A little wonder. Mommy, he can talk. And a little joy. All at the hands of a little creature called... E.T. E.T. From the brilliant imagination of Steven Spielberg. E.T. The biggest movie event of all time. Gotta find it. Relive the magic of E.T. Sunday. So, uh, E.T. The Extraterrestrial came out June 11th, 1982 from director Steven Spielberg. You might have heard of him. Um, It is ranked on the list number 24 um, of the AFI Top 100. uh, Moving up a spot from 25 in the original 1998 list. It's one of five Spielberg movies on the list, as Casey mentioned earlier, along with Saving Private Ryan, Jaws, Schindler's List... And Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, Close Encounters was actually on the 1998 list, but then uh, Ryan kind of took its place. It won four Oscars at the time at the 55th Academy Awards, including Best Score, Sound, Editing, and Visual Effects. And actually, uh, Richard Attenborough, who of course worked with Spielberg later on Jurassic Park, when he accepted his uh, the Best Picture Award and Best Director Award that night for Gandhi, stated, I was certain that not only would E.T. win, but that it should win. It was inventive, powerful, and wonderful. I make just much more mundane movies. And the big thing also is um, none of us were around for like the box office of this movie, but it's insane if you look up the box office history of this movie, where it was like spent a whole year in the theaters um, without like having much of any breaks. Um, it still holds the highest record for like number one weekends at sixteen. And remains the seventh highest grossing movie of all time worldwide when adjusted for inflation. And it's still like referenced and beloved, and so many people have so much to like really glom onto and love about this movie. So, on that note, Adam, uh, why do you think they're all wrong? I. Uh, okay. Um, <laughs> that's a loaded fucking question. Now, uh, I don't necessarily think anybody's wrong. If you, I understand this is one of those movies, like if you saw it as a kid, it fucking like blew your mind like it's it's just a marvel of you know hollywood or whatever to certain kids and, and you know like the goonies or charlie and the chalk factory or you know any of those it's a fucking just a masterpiece of cinema for children uh i was not one of those children 
I instantly uh, was like, what the fuck am I watching? Even then, and I got to say, when I first saw this, I was probably like six, maybe seven. I, I just, I, I, I think it's so fucking boring and so schmaltzy and just ugh, so sugary, sweet in parts. And then yet you get like the white E.T. like when he's dying and you're like Jesus Christ this is terrifying and then it's like the other night he looks like a fucking nutsack half the time like it's just I I just I, I can't nah just nah like D. Wallace is good in it the kid's good in it I can't remember his fucking name ever Henry whatever Thomas Henry, Henry Thomas you know that second name especially I don't think you would really remember that well it's not a distinctive last name in any regard or a first name quite frankly you know, yeah, I hate the first name. Like, when it's somebody's first name, they're a piece of shit. Oh, I know, uh, right? It's, yeah, yeah, fucking awful. No, it's just, I, I just, I, I never bought into it. I, I I never really liked it. I never got into it. And as I grew older, my ire for it sort of grew worse. And it's just, like, I tried to rewatch it uh, fairly recently for, like, the third time since it's been out with my kid my kid was instantly like no i'm good like even this time i I made myself watch it for the show but man was i doing absolutely everything else i could possibly find to do while it was on i paused this for everything all right drew barrymore is absolutely adorable and and i do love reese's pieces but other than that i'm good i love this movie (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, when you when you guys told me that this was the bad pick, my first response I think was, "Man, punish me with a good time, why don't you?" Yep, that's very true. That's what he said. My follow up was acknowledging of this list of 100 movies, there are four or three Frank Capra movies and another three or four musicals. This is probably the corniest movie on the list. That's true. When you're much cornier than It's a Wonderful Life. <laughs> you gotta like really recontextualize yourself to a certain degree. I mean, for me, this is the first time I'd seen it probably uh, once again since high school. But I had seen this when I was a kid because I was definitely. I think we we all kind of fit into this mold of like being Amblin kids, being raised by like the various movies that were either directed by Steven Spielberg or produced by Steven Spielberg. And I think like admittingly that kind of aesthetic has gotten a bit tiring to me in terms of just like general cultural osmosis now with like our modern sort of still to this day, like since like I was like in high school, but even forward further, like the eighties nostalgia has gotten a bit tiring, even down to Spielberg making ready player one, which feels like a really weird, like not even invested hand job to himself. But even with all that, I wanted to kind of remove some of that from like watching it this new time, just really see it for what it is. And weirdly, I think maybe because of that overexposure, what interested me so much more this time around in particular, is, like, the smaller interactions with the characters. Like, whenever they do the big sweeping things, like John Williams' score pops in, Over the Moon, the big shit that we're all aware of, like, that's been parodied countless times. That stuff is still just, like, it's very technically well made. But the stuff I really glommed onto is just, like, when it's these kids just interacting with this puppet, like, that's when this puppet feels the most real. Like, when it's just, especially E.T. sort of at his long neck status, um, and he's just hanging out with these kids, and you feel, like, these kids are just actually reacting to a living creature that's there. I think this movie is where it actually hits its sort of magic points that it really wants to hit. And then it tries to do it more explicitly and it feels a bit more schmaltzy to me. Which is still to say, I like this movie still, but I think it's gone down a bit more in my estimation in terms of the Spielberg ranking, as it were. So maybe it's just my own list, Adam. 
Yeah, I mean, but the fucking if you're gonna do a Spielberg Alien movie, it's gotta be Close Encounters over this. I I think this is way better than Close Encounters. You I, get get the fuck off my show. I, <laughs> I think that they're both great, but this one can be great in under two hours. I'll watch Cocoon over this. Whoa! I'll, I mean, will you yeah. watch Cocoon: The Return over this? No. <laughs> but like dude i'll watch batteries not included over this i, I think the, i just i think it's and batteries not included is by the way a very schmaltzy movie as well but this is just fucking give me last starfighter give me flight of the navigator give me any I, I, any day over et et to me is so fucking boring and long I really want the FBI agents to shotgun the kids on the bikes wait there were what, guns in this movie yeah, right exactly <laughs> All I saw were walkie-talkies. It's so painful. Oh, God, and that's the worst. What the fuck? No, to be fair to him, that cut is out of circulation now. He regrets oh, doing thank, that edit. Thank, praise Jeebus, because that was fucking stupid. Though that's how I saw that movie in the theater, actually. It was oh, like I saw it in the, oh, like, the 20th release. anniversary screening, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then it's like, I know there's some people out there who, I mean, absolutely champion this film like it's the greatest thing they've ever seen you know if you love the movie you love it i just i don't fucking get it yeah i can get behind elliot that kid's fucking cute i've seen his i saw his audition thing where yes. he cries on command and it breaks your fucking heart like mm-hmm. literally and you literally hear spielberg go okay you got the job you yep. like jesus like it's a very sort of endearing he's a he's a cute kid now he's he's terrifying if you've seen any mike flanagan movies of recent he's very terrifying oh my movie. god he scares the shit out of me but it's just, man. <laughs> Before the 80s kids just, like, are finished sharpening their pitchforks to stab both you and me to I'm some an extent. Kid. I'm an 80s kid. Right, right. No, but the other ones. You're the faker in this part. Um, yeah, I know. I'm, like, the voice of the 80s kids on the show, and they're all going to be fucking mad at me. But I want to hear from a 2000s, 2000s kid, like Casey, who does really love the movie and is weirdly the odd man out. <laughs> I guess to some extent. In yeah, Casey scenario. was born in 2009, everybody. That's true. Yes. <laughs> it's true. I was actually born at a screening of District 9. <laughs> it's my most favorite movie I've ever did thought. <laughs> so, so, Casey, um, why don't you go a bit more into the defensive? Would you say this is maybe your favorite Spielberg movie? Definitely not. I really love this movie as... A summer blockbuster that's also a meditation on loneliness and isolation. I really like how uh, even in, like you were mentioning, the little character interactions, there's still a tiny little bit of conflict that just gets uh, tossed around here and there. Like watching a movie from the perspective of the mom, who even though it's not explicitly stated... This, she's definitely only a recent divorcee, and she's in over her head a little bit. She's still trying to adjust to how to raise these kids on her own. And a little bit of the bitterness that she has towards their father that she does not want to show them. I really like having the older brother be into football, learning to drive a car, and also into D&D. He's kind of not really in the spot where you can be a nerd or a jock. So when you see the shot of him after he's met E.T. and he's trying to figure all this out on the bus and everyone's just horsing around and he just is kind of uh, taking it all in, I think that there's a lot of emotional weight to figuring stuff out as a kid and figuring out loneliness that kind of gets overlooked for the sake of the more grandiose stuff. 
I do completely agree with that. I think especially watching it this time was sort of like cracking open a lot of things for me. When I was younger and I watched like a lot of these Spielberg movies given I was a kid of divorce. And I was like, oh yeah, that's why I like really glommed onto his work. Because <laughs> I don't know if you guys know this, but I think Spielberg has like some daddy issues about his dad who divorced his mom. <laughs> and then kind of left the family for a bit. Name 35 movies with an example. <laughs> that's true. That's a good point. I can't name any of his filmography that would say that. Um, but but no, I think that stuff really works, especially there's that great dinner table scene where it is like there's the E.T. hasn't even really entered the fray. Um, you haven't really seen a clear shot of him. But that interaction between D. Wallace, Henry Thomas, Drew Barrymore, and also Robert McNaughton, who doesn't get a lot of credit for this movie because he never really went on to do anything after this. But that family unit feels like an actual fractured family unit. I totally believe that these people are, like, family to some degree. And even D. Wallace, who's the only adult that really appears in full, like, non-silhouetted or whatever form for most of the movie, like, you also get the sense that she's, like, a younger mom, and that she's kind of, because she's only, like, in her early 30s at this point, and given Robert Naughton's, like, probably 14, 13, it's like, oh, wow, she had this kid pretty young. And you can tell that she kind of has that kiddish spirit to her still at the same time. And you can tell just through subtle interactions. Like, I love when Elliot says penis breath, and she's scolding at him, but yet, like, laughing at the same time. <laughs> like, there's like, that's a real moment. You get a lot of that in this movie, and I think that's why, you know, any of the interactions that happen later with E.T. and, like, the kids works well, because you believe this family unit. I totally believe that Robert McNaughton would be the, like you mentioned, kind of jockey, but also kind of nerdy, being empathetic as well. It's really that the whole movie is about trying to have empathy for other people. And that using the metaphor of this alien, I think, is a fine way of doing it to some degree. But I will also say, I think there's some points where they kind of go overboard with it. Like, I'll say my biggest problem probably with the movie is having the literal, like, telekinetic emotional connection between E.T. and Elliot. I don't feel that that element pays off as much as they think it does and also i think it spells out so many things that were really subtly expressed beforehand thank god yes that's 100 <laughs> true that, that's another thing about this movie that fucking drives me crazy and movies in general where they feel they gotta fucking spell everything out for you in every single way you get they got this fucking bond and they're empathetic towards each other i don't need to see the literal like telekinetic connection i don't fucking need that none of that I do agree with both of you. This movie is very much about empathetic and find, making your own sort of family unit and fitting in the places where you, you know, you can and just coming together and dealing with, you know, whatever is going on. But it's so fucking ham-fisted that it's like, oh, my God. It's like I'm watching a fucking episode of Oprah. Like, I just, I, it's just too much, man. It's too fucking much. And like I said, they spell it out for you in like nine different ways constantly. Yes, the magic of E.T. with the neck and then the wig with the Reese's Pieces and, you know, cute little Drew Barrymore screaming at him and him, yeah, whatever the fuck. You know, I get it. It's adorable. But uh, I, I don't even get a minute in this movie where I'm like, oh, I, I just, I, I just can't. Nope, none of that for me, please, sir. Take this away. I don't know, Adam, but like, what about that bit of the table where like, he says, I did breakfast, and Drew Barrymore's like, I did breakfast. Like, she's copying them. Uh, yeah, it's adorable. Uh, little annoying-ass sister. So cute. <laughs> it's a, but I don't care. That's the thing. Not for one second do I really care. So you don't agree with the sensation that like they don't feel like a real family to you? I mean, they might, I, but I, I, I'm so checked out already, like instantly. 
maybe when I first saw this when I was a kid, I might have believed it, but I, it has such a stigma with me now that I don't even like. I probably don't give it the credit that it deserves. I probably don't give it the sort of attention span or attention to detail that maybe I should. But I, I physically can't. Do you feel that part of it is sort of being like like we all are, but especially even you because you were even closer to its release when you know you eventually became cognizant? Like, did you feel like it was also a lot of the hype around ET being as big as it was? I think that's still part of the problem. Like, it's still, like, anytime they do a new, you know, home video release or anytime there's an anniversary, it's all you fucking see and hear about. It, it's still just a huge, huge movie. And I, I mean, rightfully so. I mean, it, it was nominated for a bunch of fucking awards. It won some. It's with inflation and everything, the seventh highest grossing film of all time. 16 weeks at number one in the box office. Every kudo it gets, it deserves. I'm not going to argue with any of that. Uh, but personal opinion, it's a pile of shit. <laughs> no bullshit. It is a le- severe uh, lack of emotional connection for me. If it helps, I showed this to a friend a couple years ago, and he considers it a very unique experience in that without having seen the movie, he knew everything in it just through random bits of pop culture that imitated it. The only part of the movie that he did not know was uh, them driving in the van with the tunnel. Like it's such a copied movie that it's, that it's pretty easy if you did not see it as a kid to uh, be very uh, disengaged from and while that does sound like a cop-out of, oh, if you already knew it all, of course you didn't get engaged. But as we just talked about with Casablanca, that isn't always the case. You can get engaged with something even if you already know it all through pop culture osmosis. The first time I actually sat down and watched it from start to finish, uh, I was 14. Because before then, I was three. We had the tape. As a three-year-old, I probably tuned out like just around Halloween and started running around the house. I tried watching again when I was nine. That was around when I realized I was afraid of hospitals. <laughs> and when E.T.'s dying is really scary when you're afraid of hospitals as a kid. So it took until I was 14 to actually sit down and watch it. And I fell in love with a movie made for six-year-olds. Well, do you necessarily agree with some of the things you may have said, like maybe about the telepathic connection? Do you kind of disagree with us on that front? It doesn't bug me. By and large... Uh, most of the telepathic stuff is just seeing random little things like, oh, he makes the flower come back to life, and then later you see it, uh, you see it dying as he fades away. I think is neat, and it doesn't bother me. Well, how dare you? Um... Well, it's, it's an incredibly corny movie, and if it's too corny for someone, I'm like, yeah, yeah, I do not blame you. No, yeah, and I mean, I had similar sort of connections with it. Like, my sister was deathly afraid of E.T. as a child, um, to the point where... My aunt half hearing like, oh, she's like, has a weird thing about E.T. I'll go ahead and go to Universal and get her an E.T. doll for Christmas. And she was terrified of it. And we used that for a, probably a decade to scare the shit out of her. And you give them points because, you know, we're great people, us kids. And so, like, I obviously there's the connections I have with that or, like, the E.T. ride, which is one of the weirder ride slash sequel things ever especially with steven spielberg narrating about like you have to go to the green planet which is et's homeworld and meet his friend botanicus and all this other bullshit they made up botanicus botanicus is his best bud on the green planet <laughs> this is not made up uh yeah like there's obviously like there's so much cultural osmosis attached to et that can be kind of hard especially to like either treat it fairly necessarily or 
remove the rose-colored glasses on the opposite end of that. I give this movie so much credit in all the world for, like, some of the things it really establishes. Like, E.T., as much as, like, we've been kind of, like, dancing around him and talking more about the family, I think he's mostly a really great effects marvel. Like, the only time where I have any issue with him is really when he's sort of, like, short-necked and you see him visibly. Like, the whole sequence where he gets drunk is the most of, like, him feeling, like, not, like, a real thing whatsoever. And also, I'm not a huge fan of that whole sequence in general, because I feel like it kind of is, like, the most labored example of trying to really establish your point about, um, like, their telekinetic connection, and also not helped by... Ellie, you didn't need to kiss that girl. Don't, don't do that. You're a fucking creep. Don't do that. <laughs> but, um, I still feel most of the time, like, he feels like a real thing like anytime he interacts with these kids especially like the long neck version of him like i love the sequence where he like he's like initially in the closet and he's kind of like extending his neck upward and is trying to like kind of like an initial connection with these kids uh I, I think like sequences like that really do a great job of establishing this thing doesn't feel like it's fake i can't agree with that i mean it is a pretty brilliantly realized sort of puppet character i mean it, it's Pretty, pretty impressive still uh, to this day, but on that level, yeah, E.T.'s fucking awesome, the creature alone, but you know. <laughs> we're, very, we're well aware. We're very well aware. <laughs> um, what else can you maybe give the movie, though? Despite, like, all your rantings and ravings, what else can you maybe give about, like, some of the technical stuff? Like, do you, like, say how they portray the government agents? I don't. I think it's stupid. You're talking about somebody who would, like... Vimley hates this movie. I did, but I do like D. Wallace. Mm-hmm. I know it sounds crazy, but I love D. Wallace. I've always liked D. Wallace, and I think this is one of D. Wallace's more heartfelt, going for the drama performances. I think she's absolutely fantastic in this. She feels like everybody's mom, and you know the iconography of this movie is still pretty amazing. The silhouette in front of the moon is still brilliant. It's a brilliant shot. It's a brilliant image. It's instantly recognizable no matter where it is who sees it i mean it's one of those it's absolutely genius uh so i'll I'll give it you know there are things about it that they did obviously they did well uh it's just like i said it's all emotional disconnect for me it's i can't get past the cheese the schmaltz you find it very manipulative you would say yeah i think it's incredibly emotionally manipulative i i think in in pretty much every level E.T. itself, the, the creature, is simply there to, you know, no, look at him, oh, no, he's cute, oh, he's dying, oh, he's... Every movie has that in, in a way, especially these type of movies. But like I said, this one, it just beats you over the fucking head with it, repeatedly. It just drives me fucking nuts. Like, I want the bike to crash into a fucking mountain, like, into a mountain range. Like, I, I want them to be in, like, Colorado. That John Denver was full of shit, man. But no, I don't know why, but now I'm imagining the bikes crashing into a mountain and it's like the Brazilian soccer team. <laughs> no, it becomes alive. I was going to say, I was going to say, it becomes an alive situation. They're eating slices of each's ass. We ate Greg. <laughs> <laughs> I love the tasteless synergy, too, of having a crash joke followed by a John Denver joke. Aces. There, Adam. Hey, that's from Dumb and Dumber, you prick. But yes, that is true. I, I do agree with you in terms of, I think, like, the the more manipulative stuff, I think, comes in towards sort of, like, the climax when we get... Like, I actually really like the element of most of these um, adults appearing as, like, sort of, like, the Tom and Jerry, like, they're, uh, like, from the waist up 
that you really see them and their faces are mostly hidden. I like that effect because it does make this feel more like it's from the kid's perspective. I think it's where the movie feels like it's most genuine. I think the trouble is when we like expose like Peter Coyote, I think it's where I start losing a bit of that. If, if nothing else, because they literally do it, but also I still feel like exposing Peter Coyote, I think feels a bit more like, oh, we're kind of letting your guard down, letting you sympathize with these people that like Elliot would still find terrifying. You made a really good point. The one part when, you know, they first do show uh, the Peter Coyote character, is in the, he's in the suit and the, he comes in, there's all like the steam and mist behind him and everything. That was a very smart choice because in that second, you're seeing it through the kid's eyes. Where it's so scary. If they would have done the whole movie like that well, I, I, I'd have a completely different opinion of this film. But it just gets too, like you said, the Tom and Jerry-ish stuff. And then too, it's just too, too much. Too, too much. But that scene is legit. I'll give you, I, I will fucking give you that, sir. Well, at least we, gave, we got something out of him. Um, Casey, get back those 80s kids before they kill us, please. Uh, get, get, uh, heap some praise on the movie, please. <laughs> I like the music. It's fun. <laughs> by the way, 80s kids, Thomas doesn't like the Goonies. Oh, no, yeah, I'll stand by that. <laughs> yeah, but I get attacked for it. I like an E.T. Fuck, do I have an 80s hot take? Shit. I'm sure you John have. Hughes got better when he stopped doing teen stuff. Uh, that's the closest I got. <laughs> No, that's a that's a legit hot take. That works. I, I, yeah, but I think that's true too. Yeah, no, we all agree. See, we all agree on something, everybody. <laughs> we all agree on that we hot take. We all agreed on Casablanca. Well, whatever. That was forty five minutes ago. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I mean, yeah, I, I obviously the John Williams score is really iconic and all that other stuff. Um, do you have any like real flaws with it, Casey? Maybe to connect us a bit further. I don't laugh at it a lot, even though there's a lot of jokes. Like I said, the corniness and the schmaltziness, I it doesn't bug me, but I do cannot say it's a uh, positive quality. Here's an interesting question, then. Um, so you, we mentioned Spielberg has five movies on this list. W- given, like I mentioned, Jaws, Raiders, Schindler's List, this movie, and Saving Private Ryan. Um, and you've said before that you would probably want to like have filmmakers not have like so many multiple movies. Would this be one of the ones that you would cut of those five? Definitely, I would. Oh, I just realized what my hot take for the A's is. Raiders is okay at best. I would definitely cut that. Oh. <laughs> oh. I don't no. start caring about Indiana Jones movies until Last Crusade. I would easily cut this one. I would easily cut Raiders, and I would easily cut Saving Private Ryan if we just had to limit it down to two. If you were to ever do this list again, I would agree that I think Spielberg doesn't need to have five. Like, the two I would definitely keep would be Jaws and Schindler's List. Just because that gives you the perfect sort of, like, huge arc of his career, where it's, like, going from the big blockbustery stuff to his eventual, like, sort of more Oscar-y material. I think that sort of, like, gives you a pretty good die out of those. Um, I might say keep Raiders, but I wouldn't say keep the other two. I would definitely agree that I think E.T. and even Seven Private Ryan, which I enjoy more, I, I feel honestly kind of does peak early, obviously given the opening. Um, and then from there, still a very good movie that could nix for other filmmakers. Like, I don't know, women filmmakers or more filmmakers of color besides the one Spike Lee movie? Don't worry, the next list will have two Spike Lee movies. It will Ryan. double the number of non-white directors. Seeing <laughs> Private Ryan's a hard one to say I'd cut, but out of the ones that are there, if I gotta go, you know, ah, shit, if I gotta make cuts, it's, I mean, Jaws has to be there. Mm-hmm. Of course. <laughs> Oh, Raiders has to be there for me. 
I absolutely love it. Fuck you, Casey. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, man. And then St. Pry Ryan, E.T., and what's the fifth? Schindler's List. Oh, God, how can you <laughs> Jesus Christ. I'm going to talk about making a hot take. How the hell do you... God, no, I'm not going to Schindler's List. Just, A, it doesn't deserve to be, and B, oh, my God. To, to reference a separate movie on the list that should be removed, it's a real Sophie's choice. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I agree. I would also add, like, there, to me, there's no question Jurassic Park should be on the list. Okay, so you would, like, have more Spielberg movies and have less opportunity for other filmmakers, then? Well, no. The, fuck you, man. No, let's put it this way. <laughs> if I, Jaws has to stay. Yeah. Raiders has to stay. Okay. And then if we're going to have three, then goodbye, Schindler's List. Jurassic Park should be there. There would be no there would be no modern summer blockbuster if it wasn't for Jurassic Park. Well, I don't necessarily disagree, but I think the, that's the trouble I've kind of had with like looking at this list and thinking what I would add necessarily. It's so, it's so hard to do. Well, I mean, it's hard to do, but also at the same time, like, I also don't want to do that thing where like you just describe three movies that I would say, like, oh, I grew up with them as a child and love them. Like, I don't want to do that either. I don't want to end up doing this no. thing where it's like, oh, all my favorite movies from childhood need to be there. I no, think like I that. I agree with you. Like, I don't think the Goonies should be on this fucking list. I don't think Nightmare on Elm Street should be on here. I don't think, you know, fucking well, the thing should probably be on there. But I would have put Big Trouble in Little China on there. I wouldn't put Gremlins even on there. And as much as I love it, as much as that movie meant to me, I wouldn't put it in the top 100 films of all time. Absolutely not. So don't don't you come in here <laughs> with your fucking your big city ideas <laughs> and your slick talk. <laughs> try to tell me what I think about what I like. Thing is, now that you said Nightmare on Elm Street, I kind of want to put Nightmare on Elm Street three in the AFI top one hundred, <laughs> just for a chaos pick, <laughs> just to fuck with it. Yeah, chaos pick, Dream Warriors, bitches. <laughs> but you know, we're obviously getting far away from ET, so we should definitely do final thoughts. Um, in particular, Adam, if you have anything you haven't exhausted about how much you don't like ET, <laughs> your final thoughts. Uh, yeah, I mean. I get why people like it. I don't know, man. <laughs> so eloquently put. That was actually done with I... a, a stand-up bass. <laughs> I believe uh, Ben Burt supplied that sound effect, much like he did for yes, E.T. absolutely. <laughs> In the Star Wars movies. We're... <laughs> You're going to have to submit that sound effect to the Oscars this year. Pretty late competition. You have a shot. Oh, look, and, and here's a documentary clip of Ben Burt talking about, well, I combined two different animal noises, and then I also got a lady who chain-smoked it from my laundromat, and we combined them together digitally. Then I had a chalupa and recorded it in the bathroom. You know, that is both a rhino fart and a hippo fart put together. <laughs> and look at this. If I put my hand in my armpit... <laughs> and I squeeze it real tight. <laughs> Christ. Did Ben Burt work on E.T.? He did. He did actually create the sound effects and stuff for E.T. So his legacy has existed now to Adam's fart. That's exactly what it is. <laughs> Chewbacca's roar, E.T.'s voice, Adam's fart. <laughs> the three top sound effects. I'm sure he's exactly. listening. Oh, I'm sure. one of our Patriots. Thank you, Ben Burt. <laughs> voice of Walla, yes. <laughs> Casey, I'm sorry, your final thoughts. I love this movie. Uh, I totally understand why other people do not click with it. It clicks with me pretty much entirely. I don't really get bored. Uh, Even when it's doing things I'm not crazy about, like having jokes that aren't landing, I'm still with it. 
I really love the character interactions. I really love it when it's uh, silent and contemplative, and I really love it when it's grandiose. And would you say even in terms of like a Spielberg um, ranking, would you put it maybe in top five, top ten? Where? Probably top five, maybe Maybe it just barely uh, gets pushed out into number six. I would have to revisit Minority Report and uh, focus on the, some of the 90s and 2000s stuff. Yeah, and I mean, I, I will say, like, revisiting it here, like, I've done this, before, especially as of recent, where I'm just like, oh, I do want to revisit some of these movies from my childhood, but I don't want to have the rose-colored glasses necessarily of nostalgia, which is not something I, like, completely decry for people to have. It's just that I feel like that sort of nostalgia has become so commercialized, I feel like it's kind of abhorred me a bit, um, you know, to where stuff like Stranger Things, which I st- like as a show overall, I still feel like it has that sheen that kind of slightly avert- averts me to some extent. Um, but at the same time, you know, like, watching this again, I will say this is one of those examples where, like, with other movies, like, that was like, oh man, does Back to the Future still hold up? Yes. Does yes. Raiders still, does Raiders still hold up? I would argue yes, Casey. Um, <laughs> do, do some of these other ones, like, they still hold up really well. And I would say E.T. has gotten to a place where I still really enjoy and I respect a lot of what it does. But I would say other movies have come out that have kind of taken that influence and done a better job with it. Which is something I think this list could benefit from, honestly. is like, this the AFI list, as much as this, you know, had a special place for me as a cinephile, it's definitely made by people who were, like, you know, sort of young and youthful in the 70s to 80s. Like, that was most of the voting population, especially with the 2007 list. And it does feel like a lot of that is kind of, you know, represented in a way that I feel like you could lose some of them. And I feel like E.T. is one that we could lose, but that doesn't mean it's a bad movie to me. I'm not necessarily quite the Adam Camp of farting on it in Ben Burt fashion. Like Casey kind of said at the beginning of our show, it's one I respect more than I like at this point, necessarily. It fits more around, like, sort of mid-tier Spielberg territory. Like, I would say this fits right around, like, Empire of the Sun, where it's a movie I really respect... Necessarily one that I go back to or would want to necessarily all the time. Yeah, I could kind of see that. I mean, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I can't disagree. Temple of Doom. Yeah, that's more around the range. It's not. It's it's nowhere like on an always or nineteen forty one (laughs) level or Kingdom of the Crystal Skull or Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Right, right. Though to be fair, at some point we will be doing a Spielberg episode. That's a given. So many movies. Yeah, that's true. I'm down. We're we're definitely doing that at some point in the near future. But now. We're in the present, and uh, we have some feedback to read. Because every week at DEDB Pod, we ask you all about, like, hey, what are your favorite, least favorite things related to whatever topic we're doing? So we asked you about this AFI list update. And we also asked, you know, what might you add, especially that has come out in the last several years, to the list. And um, I first we have James Rodriguez, who says, The General is one of Buster Keaton's best works, and I'm glad to see it on the list. I also have a lot of love for The Silence of the Lambs. Not a fan of Forrest Gump or Annie Hall. Um, I would say Barry Jenkins' Moonlight deserves a place on the list, for sure. Um, and then Jonathan Haddon McHale says, The Matrix should be in the list alongside Blade Runner. Its impact in science fiction and blockbuster filmmaking deserves a spot. Quite surprised The Exorcist isn't on here. Out of the recent films, Get Out, Moonlight, and Hereditary would uh, make good additions. AFI may not like this, but the Avengers making the number 100 specifically spot to signify the achievement of the MCU's decade-long storytelling. If, uh, if it were easy, uh, we would have had Sony Sinister Six movies and Zack Snyder's Justice League 3 with Mad Max Batman. That is something I kind of considered for... Uh, I'll probably discuss it a bit later. I'll mention something I'm working on. 
um, oh. is uh, how do you all feel about the idea of like in terms of especially recent movies? Should we add a superhero movie, and what movie should we add? If so, uh, yes, I think we should. Man, it's a toss. There's so many good ones, but I'd say Logan's a really good contender. It'll probably be The Dark Knight if there is one. Uh, but I, I would honestly say either Logan or maybe even like Endgame or uh, <laughs> I'd love to see Batman Returns make the cut, but that ain't going to happen. I think it should be The Dark Knight, and I think The Dark Knight has the best chance of, if there is another list, ending up being the superhero movie on there. Uh, the reason I would put it there over, say, Logan, which is a movie I think is roughly equal in quality, is that... Logan is a superhero movie that's also part Western. It's a deconstructed part genre of superhero. Dark Knight's just straight superhero movie. And I think that if you wanted to give toast to the genre, the best way to do that would be to do a straight version of it. To be fair, the Dark Knight's also very much like a crime thriller. It's a very Michael Mann Yeah, I completely agree. Movie. I completely agree. <laughs> I think if we're going straight superhero movie, then it would be like Avengers or even one of the other X-Men. Oh, God, Jesus, please, no. We, we, don't, like, we don't need Brian Singer yeah. on the list. I but think like, but like Spider-Man 2, you know, it'd be dope. I think that's a perfect Spider-Man movie. There's a lot of them, uh, but, it, it, I mean, I think Casey's right. I think we're kind of all unanimous. If, if one does make the list, it will be The Dark Knight. Uh, I think mainly on the strength of the pop culture phenomenon that it was. Right, and the Heath Ledger performance, obviously, yes. a lot of that stuff. But I think it's like I've heard some people decry, like, "Oh, do we need to add a superhero movie to this list?" It's like there are like how many westerns on this fucking list? But there is quite a few westerns on here that, dude, they don't, they fucking do not hold up. And I'm a big western fan as well, and I think I've seen pretty much every one of the westerns that's on the list. I'd argue out of God, what is it like twelve to fifteen of them. No, I don't At think least. it's that many, but it's it's around like five to ten somewhere. It's, it's okay. So we'll say we'll say ten, best estimate. Uh, I, to, that way, I don't sound too stupid. I'd say half of them hold up. They, they're so dated and so problematic, and just you know, they're on there. Those are on there for nostalgia reasons, without question. Right, and there's even ones that I feel like kind of repeat certain things. Like I would argue, you know, one of the recent ones I watched when I was finishing off the list was a Shane. And really watching, yes. I'm just like, oh yeah, Unforgiven did this. That's already on the list and does it better. I, I agree. No, don't, I, I definitely agree. I still think Shane is a fine movie. I think it's a, it's actually yeah. a really good movie. But I agree. Un, Unforgiven is a better version of Shane. Logan is a better version of Shane. True. They they quote <laughs> Shane as well. Yeah, right. <laughs> the Matrix absolutely should be on the list. The Thing should be on the list. Uh, Night of the Living Dead. You, Blade Runner. There's so many that should be. Alien. Blade Runner is on the list. Blade Runner is, is on the list. Yes, that is. It was on the recent Added. update. Okay, see, I'm fucking, you know, fuck me, I guess. I read the old one. Uh, but there's a lot that uh, that aren't, and I, I like, to piggyback on what Casey said earlier, Minority Report's pretty fucking good. But, you know, uh, so this can only, obviously it can only be American films, financed or whatever we want to call it. Right. Uh, I don't know if that's problematic anymore or not. Like, I get why we do it, but if we're talking the top 100 movies of all time, I get American-made movies. There's several foreign films that beat out several of these movies. Right. So, I, I, eventually, I would hope that it would just be an all-encompassing list. Well, I mean, th- there are lists like that out there. What I like kind of about the AFI doing it... they're not as it, prestigious, though, as the AFI. Well, that's true. They're not necessarily as prestigious. But what I like kind of about the AFI thing is they put certain parameters on that. 
And I think that makes it more of like these kind of tough choices you have that makes it kind of interesting to discuss this. Is that it's like, okay, you can only have these certain limitations about it, and you can't just, you know, put something there that has like no real recognition to in any regard. Just like, I want to put on uh, Ghoulies on the list. Like, no, come on. <laughs> right. come on. We have to have some you, know what, Tom, you said something last time we spoke, actually. Uh, Planet of the Apes should be on the list. Fuck That's yes. one I know Casey agrees with, yeah. <laughs> I honestly, dude, the Warriors should be on the list. I, I could the, be sold on that. Dude, fucking Shaft should be on the list. Uh, you know, Foxy Brown sh- could have a place on the list. All those, there's a lot of really good black exploitation films that should, it should be represented. I'm not saying all of them, but it should be represented. I, I would definitely agree that, like, there definitely needs to be that kind of representation. And so, Casey, that makes me want to ask you, so um, what would you feel necessarily could be removed and what do you think would need to be placed on here yourself? Some some titles. I'm going to drop one war movie and one comedy. I'll go with one of the Marx Brothers ones. I prefer Duck Soup to Night at the Opera, so I'll mm-hmm. drop Night at the Opera, I'll drop Bridge Over River Kwai, and I'll put a movie you're not going to be crazy about. I would put It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. That's an interesting choice. I'm I mean, I'm upset with that, honestly. There's definitely movies on this list, like, I'm not necessarily a fan of that I totally get being there. Yes. You know, in that right. vein. Like, I would say something like, say, um, Easy Rider. Not a huge fan of it. Me neither, but I it absolutely, does, yeah, absolutely right. belongs. I get its I placement agree. there, yeah, um, to, to that extent. Um, and, you know, um, even with It's a Mad, Mad, Mad in the World, just like the the, le- the epic scale and the amount of comedy stars they got in there, it definitely has some consideration. Even another one, to me, honestly, like a Raging Bull, I would say of the three yes. Scorsese movies, I would be fine with that being removed off the list and having just Taxi Driver and Goodfellas. That's I, a good, I, I agree. Because, like, there are definitely some filmmakers that need to have at least a couple on the list, but not, like, as many, necessarily, as there are currently, just to kind of ease that up. The Carpenter's Halloween should be on the list. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the thing, there's there are so many, but then again, we're running the same aspect. Like, if you got to choose one movie by these guys just to keep give everyone else a chance, and uh, yeah, it'd be Halloween, obviously. Right. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you right out, I will say there are a lot of Vietnam War movies on this list. Fuck the Deer Hunter. <laughs> Not a fan. The Deer Hunters got a really good De Niro and a really good walk-in, and that's about it. Right, I wouldn't mind having a different walk-in on here, but there are plenty of great De Niro's on this list. That's true. Is Deliverance on this list? I always forget. No, Deliverance is not on this list. Deliverance should be on that fucking list. Casey, I know you're not a fan of one particular one, right? Oh, yeah. Fuck, I could have just picked this to drop instead of picking two movies in its place. I would drop MASH, 100%. Not a good movie. Very sexually exploitive, shitty, not funny movie. <laughs> I completely agree. Oh, you could pick another movie that's roughly as sleazy, but also notably funnier, and put it on the list. Put Animal House on its place. I agree. More than MASH, I would definitely agree. Young Frankenstein. There's no Mel Brooks on the list, I agree. How is no Mel Brooks on this goddamn list? I know. All right, yeah. now I'm getting mad. I'm but, getting you know, mad. I would say my least favorite, honestly, even compared to, like, you know, there, there's certain ones, like, I mentioned Deer Hunter, I agree with MASH. I would say definitely I've gone with the wind for a lot of reasons. It doesn't necessarily need to be on the list anymore. But I understand why it is, though, man. I think we're fine without it now. I think we're Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think I'm really, not really, really, really good. <laughs> I'm not ready to drop it, but next time I would think, okay, put it in, like, 98 or 99. Right, I, I agree. James kind of mentioned, like, an Annie Hall, or um, even there's also, like, you know, we got Roman Polanski's uh, Chinatown on the list. Those are two movies I get why they're on the list, and I respect those movies for what they are. But at the same time, if someone decided, like, you know, do we need to have the representation on this list? 
I would not bat an eye at removing either of them. I would throw Forrest Gump off this list so fucking fast. Our alternative yep. choice, and I think a worse movie than E.T. for sure. Dude, Quiz Show was a better movie than Forrest Gump, the movie that was nominated against, along with... Uh, Pulp Fiction, which is on the list. Pulp Fiction. And Shawshank, which is also on the list as well. Oh, I mean, it's um, well, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. But um, for me, I would say, like, the lowest bottom tier, and I think it represents everything I kind of hate about sort of, like, the homework movie that I mentioned, because this felt like the long... Even though it's not the longest movie, it felt like the longest slog to me. As I mentioned, I really dislike Sophie's Choice. Sophie's Choice feels so much like it is a bad version of a Tennessee Williams play, and we already have Streetcar Named Desire, much better fucking movie. It's basically just like following Sophie around and treating her like shit the whole movie. Everyone remembers the choice scene, which is horrible and tragic and really well acted, but it's padded by 95 minutes of just fucking melodrama. No, 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 not 95, two hours and 15 fucking minutes. Oh, God, it's even <laughs> worse than I remember. Oh, okay, and you feel all of that, and you feel especially just like, and I, this is saying something like, I love Kevin Klein. Seeing Ke- like Kevin Klein's place is like super abusive asshole who I'm not yeah. engaged in at all as a character. Peter McNichol was like the audience surrogate character, and he's so dull. And like Meryl's doing a great performance, but it's still just like it's just this drama about like, hey, let's see Meryl get basically emotionally and physically abused for like two right. and a half hours, and then you have that like big Sophie's Choice literally thing at the end. It's Martyr's Light. <laughs> That's a joke for five people. Um, <laughs> Casey, what about, what are some other, like, sort of newer movies, especially, that have come out since the list has been updated, you would add? Definitely a Greta Gerwig one. I'm, it's a coin flip between Little Women and Lady Bird, though I'm leaning Lady Bird because that also kind of fits into the style of 90s alternative teen movie in the vein of Rushmore. So mm-hmm. I would probably push for that. Probably Get Out. It's not that recent. I think Spike Lee deserves a second one for Malcolm X. That's one of the best biopics yeah, I've ever seen. Fucking mm-hmm. absolutely 100% agree. I also think, like, I would give Spike Lee three spots right off the bat. I'd give him Do the Right Thing, Malcolm X, and 25th Hour. We're going a bit long, so we'll, uh, dev- I'll, I'll say to, to close with some of this feedback stuff, um, I've mentioned before my blog, MarianiThomas.wordpress.com. Around the time that this is going to be released, I'm going to be releasing a list of 15 movies I would add to this list. And also 15 movies I would remove in their place. So I would definitely recommend reading that if you want more thoughts in that vein for this particular show. Thomas, I'm going to go ahead and jump in. I might do something similar on our next Patreon episode. Ooh, interesting. Interesting. Who knows? But uh, thank you all for sharing your feedback. And uh, thanks also to Chris Oliver for the intro and outro music used in our show. Listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Thanks to Emily Scarter for the art for our show. And uh, thanks, of course, to Casey Gerard. Casey, what do you got to plug about yourself? Uh, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at the Caser, and I'm now realizing I have never plugged my letterbox on the show. It is the same handle, T-H-E space K-A-C-E-R. I think I've never actually checked what my letterbox name is. I'm just pretty certain because I use it on everything. Um, and you can follow us not on letterbox, but at DEDBpod on Twitter and Facebook, where we share all those things that we mentioned about, like your, you know, the calls to action and such. You can also email us doubleedgedoublebill at gmail dot com, all spelled out. Uh, we also want to spotlight a charity. Uh, because uh, we've been doing that the last couple of weeks, and we want to recommend uh, donate to the Black Film and TV Collective. 
given, you know, we talked about on this list doesn't have a lot of, like, movies made by people of color represented. Black uh, Film and TV Collective does a great job of, like, donating to, uh, like, for classes and equipment and stuff to help young black voices who want to get into film and television out there. And I think it's a really good cause. I think it's one that would be irrelevant to see more great, diverse potential films on a future version of this list. Yeah. You can also subscribe to us on Patreon, as Adam kind of mentioned earlier. Uh, we do have a Patreon, uh, you know, some bonus podcast episodes and also polls where you pick things like us discussing E.T. That was all you're doing out there, patrons. Thank you so much for doing that for us. And uh, around the time that this is out, you can listen to a whole nother podcast, our audio commentary we're doing, our first one that we wanted to do for so long, on Star Wars The Last Jedi. (laughs) (laughs) Totally redeemed yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So you just have to donate $1, and you'll be able to, you know, download that, and also participate in the polls. I'm not pointing any fingers at anybody, but Casey, that might be something up your alley. I'm not allowed within 500 feet of Patreon. Oh, that's true. Yeah, the incident. But if you want more content for free from us, uh, from me personally, you can follow me at not the Who's Tommy on Twitter and Instagram. That's where I post pictures and uh, you know all the my various musings and such. Um, as you mentioned, you can find my writing on MarianiThomas.wordpress.com. Also, I'm Silent Tom on Letterboxd. Actually, just to plug myself there as well where you can read my hilarious short reviews that are so funny and witty and uh you can find adam trying to just phone home get together a bunch of scraps to phone his home which i don't know where that is where is that adam the state of denial um i uh (laughs) (laughs) i'm a big fan of the senator from denial yeah me too i'm on letterbox i don't even know what my own fucking name is and if you if you want anything exciting on there you're not gonna get it i literally just rate give movie stars like i don't write anything i don't do anything you you do pretty comprehensive lists as well though well, i do have a lot of lists yeah, yeah, yeah. like i yeah. have a lot of cataloged lists casey thanks for coming on again you are actually on my favorite episode we've done of all time the star trek episode that is my absolute favorite episode we recorded for the show so thank you <laughs> i'm gonna celebrate by getting mad in the comments of a star trek facebook group do it, it some people don't like it when star trek gets political I, I don't know what show they're watching. Yeah, what the fuck it's always been? <laughs> it's like the actual keep that shit out of here. Are you fucking serious? <laughs> well, and, and apologies to all of our other guests who have been on the shows. We, we all love all of you, too. They all know I hate them equally. <laughs> That's true. Um, and for more of this love-hate that we give out, uh, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and other podcasting platforms, like the ESO Network. Though, if you want to dig into our archives for a bunch of earlier episodes we did before ESO, you can subscribe to us on our Podbean Network. We, there's like 60 solid episodes or so that we did before we joined the network. And nothing else, if you could rate, review, or share the show around, it gives us more visibility, and we would appreciate that. There's so much content. Content! listen to Yes, uh, but now, Adam, speaking of content, we got to generate content for next week, because we're moving out of the classic film territory, and we're going toward the now. It's been a weird year for movies, to say the least. It's been a weird year for a lot of things. But around this time, halfway through the year, we like doing, you know, a thing where we take a check-in to see what movies have come out so far this year, and uh, do, you know, a good and a bad pick from them, because obviously, uh, in this case, you have two good picks, in this case, and I have two bad picks, and uh, we've each assigned those numbers between 1 and 10. And so usually we would pick numbers between 1 and 10 in order to choose each other's picks. But Casey gets to do that. 
with uh, given he's a guest here, he gets the ability to point his ET finger at uh, whichever movie you end up doing. Oh, damn it! So Casey, uh, for Adam's two good picks, number between one and ten. Weird. My fingers do light up. You should see a doctor. <laughs> My favorite movie on this list is Casablanca, but my second favorite's Rear Window at number 48. So, uh, Adams will be number four. Okay. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and uh, say I haven't seen either of these picks. Mm -hmm. Uh, But at number three, I have uh, The Vast of Night. (gasps) My favorite movie currently of the year. Wow! Exactly. That's why I picked it, so I could get a chance to watch it and maybe shit on it for you. Yay! <laughs> At number nine, I had The Invisible Man, which I also have not watched this year. Great movie, too. My second favorite movie of the year. I've never even heard of that one. Not The Invisible Man. It's on at Prime. It's a smaller independent movie. It's about an alien invasion, interestingly enough. Uh, so that'll be synergy, a transition for us here, for sure. Uh, definitely seek that out on Prime if you can. Uh, but now, Casey, I'm guessing based on what you said, is my number eight? Well, now it's not yet. Yeah, it is. <laughs> oh man, I'm a psychic. I'm, I'm a real uh, soothsayer, mind reader. Okay. I, don't even, I don't even want to know what this is. Like, truly, well, but go oh, ahead. you'll know. You'll know. Um, you know. Speaking of things on streaming services, at number seven, I have the movie that Disney plopped out on Disney Plus, Artemis Fowl. Ugh. Fuck! I didn't want to watch this. I so don't even want to watch this movie. <laughs> I haven't um, seen it either. But I just, I, I really didn't want to watch it. Like, I saw the preview. Last time I went to the theater, this was one of the trailers. So I want to say it was, like, It Chapter 2. Right, because it was originally supposed to be a theatrical release. And they oh, God. It, on even then, I'm like, this looks fucking stupid. It just looks, it, it looks like another one of those, uh, this is fucking potato salads home for crazy kids. I don't know what the fuck that movie is <laughs> I love is that series. That, that's a great book series. <laughs> <laughs> they go through all the different salads. There's a Greek salad, and then there's this one's Amish, this one's salad. mustard. It's like fucking oh fuck, dude. Well, God. well, to be fair, how would you have felt if we had gone with my choice at number two, which would have been one of the movies actually released in theaters this year, Doolittle? Oh no! Oh, oh fuck! <laughs> Do you feel a bit better now? Honestly, on a morbidly curious aspect, Doolittle. Interesting. Okay, well, I'll put that in my back pocket then. <laughs> oh, fuck. <laughs> There's always a redemption, Adam. Um, well, that's been interesting uh, little picking. Stay tuned for that next week. Uh, but now it's time to go, everybody, and, uh, you know, as we transition out, play it again, Chris. He actually doesn't say that in the movie at all. He never says play it again, Sam. Everybody thinks it, everybody thinks it but it's not That's true. There. I'll do the right quote. Play it. Play the double-edged double bill closing theme, Chris. And it's the Berenstain Bears, not Berenstain. <laughs> Good a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping through Amazon.com or the Public store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, 
your station for all things geek.